Please be seated. Good evening to you. Second Kings chapter 27 this evening. Or I'm sorry, Second Kings chapter 23 this evening. And if you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible with you, so much better this evening to, as we cover some ground on Sunday evenings to be able to hear the word and read it as well. And so men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. Just get their attention by waving to them and they'll get a Bible into your hands and you can enjoy receiving it both through the ear gate and the eye gate this evening. Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we pick up things in chapter 23, verse 31, but we'll pick it up in verse 30 to get a little context concerning the death of Josiah. And then his servants, that is Josiah, moved his body in a chariot from Megiddo, brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoiahaz, the son of Josiah, anointed him and made him king in his father's place. And so the record of the death of Josiah, as we saw last week, the last of the eight good kings that the southern kingdom of Judah had, and at his death now, there is a countdown that begins to occur, just approximately 20 years left before the southern kingdom of Judah will go into captivity to the Babylonians. And they're just living like things are going to just go on forever the way that it is, no matter how wicked they get, no matter how disobedient they get. And yet that clock is ticking, and in 20 years they're going to be displaced from the land for violating the commandments in the same way that the northern kingdom of Israel did. For their wickedness and for their idolatry. It is a funny, perverse thing. It's in all of us. I don't know, to, I don't know that, what degree it is in all of us, but there's this funny thing in us that we are blind to apart from the Word of God. That Word of God that James says is a mirror and tells us what we need to be told about ourselves. Not a mirror for our faces, but a mirror for our minds and our hearts, what we think, what we feel. A mirror for our relationship with God. And there's this idea that somehow sin will have a different outcome in my life than it has in other people's lives. And that's what they thought. They thought they could engage in the same wickedness, the same idolatry, but somehow I'm different. Somehow we're different than Israel. We're Judah. And so it won't have the same end. One of the greatest things that a person can do in life when we put ourselves on a path in life whether in every decision puts us on a path. There's a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is the way of death, the Bible says, when we think we're right and God is wrong. But to look at a person and say, this is a decision that I'm about to make, and then find someone who made that same decision, only they're 10 years down that road, 20 years down that road, 50 years down that road, and see what kind of a life they're living and then decide whether you want to go down that path, too. And we know that if we choose to do righteous, we choose to do good. doesn't mean that that's always going to translate into a trouble-free life as Christians, because this is a fallen world we live in. But you look at people who choose to obey God, His Word, and you watch 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 60 years, 80 years down the road, and you see the quality of life that unfolds. And then you watch someone who decides to go into 
this particular sin or drinking or drugs or whatever the most popular sins are at the moment. And you watch how quickly they become a casualty of those sins, what they look like in one year, in five years, in 10 years. And in 50 years, you look and say, oh, I wouldn't, there's nothing about that appeals to me at all. But they failed to do that. And so time is ticking away and it's uh, and, and it's moving quick. And it was a time for repentance, but they're not going to repent. So Josiah's son Jehoiahaz, he became the king. And uh, he was uh, not the oldest son of Josiah. He was one of, Josiah had four sons. The oldest son, we don't know what happened to him. There's, there's no record concerning him. He might have died young. But Jehoiahaz was not the oldest even of the surviving sons. He's the middle son. But the people wanted him to be king, and so he became uh, the king. And he was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. That's a short reign. just gives you an idea the unrighteousness, how unstable uh, the political uh, mechanisms and everything of the nation were at this time. His mother's name was uh, Hamatol, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libnan. So he, uh, some of the sons... Uh, 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 of Josiah, he had sons, not all by the same uh, wife. And so maybe this particular uh, mother or wife was a little more prominent. And so Jehoiahaz was given the the position of of king. We don't really know. When it mentions that uh, the mother's name uh, was uh, Hamatol, the daughter of Jeremiah, that's not Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah the prophet never married under God's instruction. So it's a different Jeremiah. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. According to all that his fathers had done, he took the nation. Uh, here he is, the he is, here he is the, the godly heritage that he throws away. It's unbelievable. He's the son of Josiah. I mean, this, Josiah's name is gold in human history. Not just Jewish history, but human history. And he has grown up in all of that. And he just throws that godly heritage away like it's nothing. And he turns to the wickedness and reintroduces the wickedness of his uh, great-grandfather, Manasseh into the practices of the land. Oh, I'll tell you, the, don't ever throw away a godly heritage. Sometimes, sometimes it was a funny thing when I, when I was a young Christian. Sometimes they had um, a particular ministry that you could, um, I don't want to, I don't want to, well, it was Firefighters for Christ. And you could get tapes for free, which was really good for me at that point in time. And I would get order these tapes and different things, and they would have a lot of testimonies, you know, and these, you know, ex-bikers and ex-this and ex-that and everything. And, and uh, man, I mean, what? The, and, I, and I realized you can say too much in a testimony after. I, I knew more than I wanted to know about them, candidly, uh, before they came to know the Lord, more often than not. But I began to think about it, and I, and I think maybe some of us do in that vein. Where we think, well, what about the poor kid that gets raised all their life in this wonderful godly home and everything, and they never had a Harley, and uh, they never used any heroin or anything like that? I mean, they're just going to always just be second tier, you know, in terms of their testimony. The greatest testimony in the world is to grow up in the church and survive with a relationship with God. <laughs> See, all the different coming and going and people, friends will walk, walk with the Lord. They stop walking with the Lord and you just keep on going through there. And what has been built into your life is going to be something that is valuable all the rest of, of your life. I got going with the Lord back in 19, 
1980, so it puts me to do the math on it. Oh, and so, but boy, I'll tell you, I, I, wish I, I wish I knew more of the Bible when I really committed my life to the Lord than I did know. Think about these, our children that are in the children's ministry. By the time they get to junior high, they've been through the Bible three and a half times in their classrooms. Now, what's the Lord going to do with them? Man, if I'd been through the Bible three and a half times, I'm not blaming anybody. I was the dunderhead. But three and a half times to have that kind of a heritage to say nothing of what happens in junior high ministry and senior high ministry. I mean, you are on a fast track in terms of of what a person knows and, and what has been avoided in life. And so this is a wonderful thing, this godly heritage. He throws it away and wastes it. And God help none of us to do that. Now, Pharaoh Necho put him in prison at Riblah in the land of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem. And, the, and uh, Pharaoh Necho put, uh, imposed on the land of Judah a tribute of 100 talents of, of silver and one talent of gold. And so he becomes, uh, he becomes the king. And then when uh, uh, Pharaoh Necho defeated Josiah at Megiddo, now Judah comes under Egyptian control. Uh, Pharaoh Necho calls uh, for Jehoiahaz to come and meet him out at uh, Riblah, about 65 miles away from Damascus. They kind of have a meeting about the terms of Judah's submission to Egypt. And, uh, and then following that discussion, the, uh, uh, Pharaoh Necho then continued on northward to uh, uh, engage in a battle with Babylon. And apparently Necho didn't uh, like the conversation that he had with Jehoiahaz and uh, didn't think he was cooperative enough toward uh, Babylon and so, or toward Egypt. So he imprisoned him, had him sent to Egypt, where eventually... Jehoiahaz died. Now you notice in verse 33 that Pharaoh imposes a tribute upon uh, Judah. This is a tribute was a tax that had to be paid every year to Egypt. And more than the money, it's kind of, uh, it's not a, it, well the silver is a hundred talents. That's 33 and a quarter ta- uh, 33 and a quarter tons of silver a year and then 75 pounds of gold. They're running out of gold. They've paid a lot of people off through the years to, to continue to skate by on their sin. They do some deficit spending. And so they've had a lot of money go out into the world economy on this. And, and so he, he comes with it, and, and it's not a huge sum of money by ancient standards, but even more than the tribute or the money that Egypt received, it was, he, they were making the point that you are no longer sovereign, you are no longer independent, but uh, you are now a, a vassal of Egypt. And Pharaoh Necho then made, having rejected Jehoiahaz as the king, he then made Eliakim, another son uh, of uh, Josiah, king in the place of his father, uh, Josiah, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. And Pharaoh took Jehoiahaz and went to Egypt and he died there. And so Jehoiakim gave the silver and gold to Pharaoh. Uh, and, and so he was uh, submitted to the leadership of Egypt. And then in order to raise that money, he taxed nothing new under the sun. He taxed the land to give money according to the command of Pharaoh. And he exacted silver and gold from the people of the land, from everyone according to his assessment, to give it to Pharaoh Necro. 
so you have this you know uh, uh, terrible ungodly leadership of the nation drives the nation into the ground and then now they're going to tax the rich in order to uh, pay it off instead of repenting of their sin nothing new under the sun this is a living book i'm telling you Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebuda, the daughter of Pedaiah of Rumah, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. So he again just continues the evil of his great-grandfather of Manasseh in terms of uh, keeping that a living thing. I mean, you just think about the condition that they're in. They just keep being brought lower and lower and lower and lower. They're um, uh, uh, on every level. And yet, no matter how low God took them and allowed them to go, they would not repent of their sin. It's really a, it's really a terrible thing. We like to think, at least I do, I like to think that among any people that that God could take a person or a people so low to a particular spot that the light would go on and a person would say, all right, I'm willing to uh, give up my sin in order to walk with God, not to go any lower in life. And yet that's not the choice that they make. And historically, many people in that kind of category. So here they are. They want to hold on to their sin, even though God is speaking to them through prophet after prophet after prophet, saying, if you'll turn from this, then I'll do good for you. But man, they love that sin and they wouldn't let it go, even though it meant the, the destruction of their whole nation and their whole way of life. And uh, that's the deceitfulness of sin and, and what the, the blindness that it brings into a, a person's life. And so here he reigns for 11 years as a puppet uh, king. And then in, the, in his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up and Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years. And so at this particular uh, point in time, Judah becomes a vassal of Babylon, and uh, ultimately, then, uh, as we see here, he then turned and rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. So, kind of the historical context, and a little bit here about Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was just a really evil, terrible man. For those of you who are um, familiar with the Book of Jeremiah, when uh, the, the the nation is imploding, uh, there's poverty everywhere. He builds palaces for himself. He just has this entitlement mentality. Um, uh, Jeremiah sends him the entire series of prophecies that God had given Jeremiah to the land. And when it's brought to this king, he cuts it up with a knife and he throws it into the fire. Many of you remember that incident as if throwing the paper of the prophecies was going to change the fulfillment of those prophecies at all. Uh, Jeremiah's life was in danger the whole 11 years that this man was was king. And uh, ultimately, he ordered the cold-blooded murder of a prophet by the name of Uriah. So he just a terrible, terrible man. And uh, power then shifts it in chapter 24, verse 1 in the biblical record. And now Babylon becomes the world-ruling empire of the Middle East, that part of the Middle East supplanting Egypt. And 
605 B.C., a little history lesson here, was the last year of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the uh, king of the Babylonian Empire. He sent his oldest son, Nebuchadnezzar, to extend the influence of Babylon uh, over all of the territory lying between Egypt and the Euphrates River. And Egypt attacked Nebuchadnezzar and uh, was badly defeated at Carchemish. And uh, Egypt did not fall as a nation itself into the hands of the Babylonians uh, because uh, it, it was it was too big of a country, too many people to conquer outright. But all of its satellites, countries like Syria, Judah, they lost all of that uh, to the Babylonians from uh, July 609 to June 605 B.C., the armies of the Babylonians and the uh, Assyria uh, uh, Egyptian coalition, they fought for the most part during those years. The Babylonians were on the defensive. And then finally, the Babylonian army under Nebuchadnezzar, and he was quite a general able to launch a great offensive against the Egyptians at Karshemesh. And uh, again, that was a stronghold of Egypt at that time, uh, really crushed the Egyptian military at that point. Egypt then scattered and ran home to, to Egypt and set up a perimeter around its own borders, uh, but was unable to protect all of the nations that had entered into uh, satellite nations that had entered into alliances with them. And so here in chapter 24, verse one is the first of three conquests of Judah by Nebuchadnezzar. They're going to make Nebuchadnezzar conquer Judah in Jerusalem three times. By the time he does it the third time, he's fairly ticked. He is really, really upset. And you don't upset this guy because he knows how to make you pay for it. But this was the first conquest of Judah. And it is during this conquest here, the first conquest, that we know that uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar began to strip away certain kinds of people from Judah that he felt were beneficial to his ruling and the advancement of the Babylonian Empire. Daniel the prophet was taken captive to Babylon under this first conquest, Daniel's free, three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they also went in this this first uh, conquest of uh, of Judah. So this was a methodology of uh, Nebuchadnezzar. It only makes sense. When he conquered a nation, he didn't just look and say, OK, what are the natural resources? What are the food supplies? What's the silver? What's the gold? What's the tin? What's the ore? What are the, the livestock? That kind of thing. He looked at people and he realized that people were a great asset and part of the spoils of war. And so he essentially inflicted what's known today as a brain drain on Judah. And today, a brain drain is when uh, you've got a particular country that is in some kind of disarray or problem, and all of the people that are maybe educated or skilled in certain fields uh, now feel that they've got to run out of that country or they see a better opportunity for them to use their gifting in another part of the world. And so they uh, emigrate from their native land and immigrate to a country historically like the United States. And they bring those skills into the United States. And it has been a great part of advancing 
you know, the great American uh, civilization. And so not everyone had these kind of skills. Nebuchadnezzar knew it. Not everyone had educational abilities or administrative abilities or leadership uh, skills. And any nation that loses a large number of those people to another nation becomes lesser for it. And, and then the nation that gains those becomes significantly stronger. People, not everybody is, it, it can do everything, and these are valuable skills. You think about in Europe, uh, thinking about World War II, and the number of scientists, and many of them Jewish scientists, the number of people that began to flee out of Europe as they saw trouble coming to come to the United States and became some of the greatest scientists in our history. Again, the great, producing a great advancement for our nation to lead the world for a century. I uh, read a little bit of military history, and it was interesting that in World War One, when the British would send their forces out into battle, they would always send their leaders out before the troops to set an example. And then consequently, they were all slaughtered. And then when they uh, they realized a little bit later in the war that leaders just weren't a dime a dozen, they just weren't growing on trees. That when these people died, you lost something that wasn't just in everybody. And so now to try and find leaders among in their military to lead the troops, they were handicapped for the rest of the war as a result of it. And in World War Two, they changed their policy, made it more like the United States policy of not sending their uh, leaders or their officers into unnecessary uh, harm because, you know, again, patents weren't everybody wasn't a patent. Everyone wasn't a Bradley. Everyone wasn't an Eisenhower and so far down, uh, so forth down uh, the line. And so they he recognized the value. He took the brightest. He took the best from them. And among them were these names that we're familiar with. And we'll talk about later uh, in a 100 years when we get to the book of Daniel. And so the Lord sent against uh, him, against uh, the king Jehoiakim and against the southern kingdom of Judah, raiding bands of Chaldeans, bands of Syrians, bands of Moabites, bands of the people of Ammon. And he sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken by his servants, the prophets. So here's what Babylon did. Babylon came down and... Uh, attempted to conquer and overthrow Egypt. Uh, they were biting off too much. It was just too big of a country, too heavily populated. Its military was still too strong to accomplish that. So they came to the border, fought the Egyptians, and they were defeated there. And so Babylon lost a battle there. Jehoiakim here, he thinks that Babylon's been mightily defeated and senses a moment of weakness. And so he rebels against Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, not realizing that Nebuchadnezzar had only lost the battle. He had not lost the war and he would win the war. So during this time where Nebuchadnezzar's got his hands full with the Egyptians, he can't really release forces to take uh, be punitive toward uh, Judah 
God says, God then stirs the hearts of these other nations to then begin to make forays into Judah. In other words, this wasn't all about Babylon. This was about Judah and God. And they could manipulate the political situation of the day. They could work this, work that. But God was judging them for their sin. And if Babylon was going to be busy for a year or two, then he would raise up other adversaries uh, to come against them. And all of this, in the midst of all of this, God continued to warn and to warn and to warn and to warn his people. I tell you, I have never slipped and, and fallen in the Christian life, except that God warned me ahead of time. He warns. He warned, look out for this. Be aware of this. Don't say anything there. Be careful in that relationship. He warns us. And he warned them over and over and over again, and they wouldn't listen. Among the prophets that he used, Isaiah, Micah, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, and then many others. And we're talking about the Hall of Fame in terms of, of prophets here. And they wouldn't listen. And so God was bringing this judgment against them, uh, uh, you know, using all of the resources, which are the resources of the world that he has uh, to use. And uh, surely at the commandment of the Lord, this came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done. So they'd reintroduced all the sins of Manasseh. And God just basically said, all right, the evil is so great among my people in this land. I don't want them in the land anymore. I don't I don't want to see them here anymore. And so he's going to remove them from the land. And then he's going to start all over again with a second or third generation and bring them in. He was also upset because of the innocent blood that had been shed. Remember, they're offering their children to Molech and rolling them into the fire that was involved in all of that. They're firstborn. And so this was the, the depths of their wickedness that they had gone into. And, and so the innocent blood that had, uh, he had shed, for uh, he had filled all Jerusalem with innocent blood, which the Lord would not pardon. And so... Here is this uh, righteous being killed, uh, children being killed, all of this kind of thing. And God looks at it and, and he recognizes the life behind all of it. And so he, he was just going to simply put a stop to it. And the only way he could put a stop to it was to bring judgment on them and remove them from the land. Now, the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim, all that he did, are they not written in the books of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And so Jehoiakim rested with his fathers and then Jehoiachin reigned in his place. Now, there's no details of Jehoiakim's death in the scriptures that we have, but the Lord had decreed through Jeremiah that the king would have the burial of a donkey. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a burial of a donkey. Probably not, because they don't bury donkeys. They didn't in the ancient world. They left them out to be eaten by the animals. And so the point was, this guy will not receive a decent burial. His body will just be left out because he was a no good. And that's that's how uh, that's the, the culture that he nurtured. That's the culture that he developed, the kind of people that he developed. And that's uh, how they express themselves at his death. And so Jehoiachin. Uh, became 
a uh, uh, reigned in his place and the king of Egypt did not come out of his land anymore. And so they weren't defeated by the conquered by the Babylonians. But again, they didn't move beyond their border because that was controlled by Babylon. For the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook uh, of Egypt to the river Euphrates, including Judah. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for three months. And his mother's name was uh, Nehushta, a little close to Nehushtan, a thing of brass, uh, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. Hello. Can anybody repent around here? (laughs) I mean, is it painful for you to read this? One person after another. Be just like, I mean, could we just take two years and do right and see what would happen? No, it's just one right after the other. He did evil. Excuse me for a moment. It just builds up in me and there's nothing I can do. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. And then beginning in verse 10 is the second uh, conquest of Jerusalem and uh, Judah by uh, the Babylonian Empire and then the subsequent uh, second deportation uh, as a result. And at that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, they came up against Jerusalem and the city was besieged. Why? Because Jehoiachin's father, Jehoiakim, had rebelled against them. So Babylon now gets everything in order related to Egypt and now they're going to come back and teach Judah a lesson for messing them with them when they had their hands full. Everybody knew what was going on. So this is real nice, though, for Jehoiachin. Thanks, Dad. Dad does the rebellion, sets the whole thing in motion, then he goes and dies. Now the son's got to deal with it, but he wasn't any better. And so the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, he came up against, they came up against Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came himself against the city as his servants were besieging it. And so um, here is this uh, great siege that is, is taking place, and uh, Jehoiachin, king of Judah, his, his mother, uh, his servants, His princes and his officers, they all surrender. They went out to the king of Babylon and the king of uh, Babylon in the eighth year of his reign took him prisoner. So uh, Jehoiachin is a a pretty rational guy. He just looks at it. uh, Jerusalem was a very fortified city. It could have probably withstood a siege for a couple of years. But he looks at it and he says, we have no hope of, of defeating Uh, Babylon, this great empire, why should we all starve to death inside of the city to prove some kind of a point when we're going to end up being defeated anyway? And so he kind of recognizes that resistance was futile, and so he then uh, surrendered. And then uh, uh, he, he carried out from there... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar did as they now stripped the land of its resources uh, more fully. He carried out from there all of the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures 
of the king's house, and he cut in pieces all the articles of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, as the Lord had said. And so now they come in and they strip all of the wealth out of the temple, out of the palace, out of the homes of the wealthy here. It's interesting when you look at verse 13, for those of us who are a little bit familiar with the book of Daniel, a man by the name of Belshazzar, who is a, will be a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar. He's throwing a big old party and everybody's drunk and he's doing his big old thing. And he decides to pull out some of these plates and cups and all this kind of stuff that were used in the worship of the Lord, that his grandfather took uh, uh, captive right here in, in this verse, took those Holy articles used in the worship of the Lord took him back to Babylon, and this guy decides to let all of these drunken people drink out of him at the party. And God shows up. He doesn't like it. He writes on the wall, Meeny, meeny, tekel, you farsin. You've been weighed in the balance, found wanting. You're dead. And so he was upset about that. We'll talk about that when we get to Daniel as well. But here is the, the origin, the stripping away of those things in, in the looting of the land. And also he carried into captivity all Jerusalem, uh, all of the captains and the mighty men of valor. So he stripped away uh, the most prominent within the military, uh, 10,000 captives, 7,000 of them we'll see in a moment were uh, military. They were soldiers, uh, but there were uh, others that were uh, pulled into it also. Interesting to note that Ezekiel was taken in this second uh, conquest of, of Jerusalem, and he was deported uh, as a result of the second conquest. So it gives you an idea when you read Ezekiel of just where this lands. And that's why he goes to Babylon and he prophesies from uh, the brook Chabar and, and, uh, or uh, the river Chabar. And he, and he is prophesying to the Jews that are already in captivity, that are part of the first conquest, the second conquest. And he's giving them, telling them ahead of time what's going to happen in Judah at the hands of the Babylonians even before it happens. And so uh, this is because the ultimate destruction of, of uh, Jerusalem, the final destruction is still a little bit out. And so uh, they then took all of the craftsmen and the smiths. So, again, these people that could work metal, they could do all of these things. Not everybody can work with their hands. Not everybody can build uh, something. And so he, again, recognizes the value of skilled people. He strips them away. After, well, after all, he's going to make Babylon one of the wonders of the ancient world. So you've got to grab these kind of people. Now, none remained except the poorest of the land. He just left them in the land. And figured he doesn't want to destroy Nebuchadnezzar. Um, I mean, he's a real ruthless guy. There's no doubt about it. But he didn't want to destroy Jerusalem. Uh, he's going to have to and he will do it. But he, he just keeps doing this in measure. So he, he takes away all these people, anyone that he thinks could lead them in a rebellion, uh, a third rebellion. And he and he leaves the poorest of the people in the land thinking, all right, they'll take care of the land. They'll keep it fruitful and cultivated. And we won't have to come back here a third time. He's coming back a third time. And he uh, carried Jehoiachin captive to Babylon. The king's mother, the king's wives, his officers, and the mighty of the land he carried into captivity uh, from Jerusalem to Babylon. And so he carries them uh, away 
uh, in, uh, away from Jerusalem and then uh, in, into uh, Babylon. And again, uh, this, uh, the, uh, at this point now, uh, the uh, uh, Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, had gone into captivity 120 years earlier, and here they are now repeating uh, the same history and all the valiant men, 7,000 and craftsmen and smith, 1,000 and all who were strong and fit for war. These the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon. And then the king of Babylon made uh, Mataniah, Jehoiachin's uncle. So Mataniah was one of the sons of uh, Josiah. All three of Jeho- Josiah's surviving sons would hold the throne. And so Nebuchadnezzar uh, makes, he's deported the other son, now makes this son the uh, king over uh, Jerusalem and over Judah. And uh, he changed his name to Zedekiah. And Zedekiah means righteousness of Yahweh. Oh, he even halfway tried to live up to his name, but he doesn't. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was uh, Hamatol, the daughter of Jeremiah uh, of uh, Libna. And so here we now have the final 11 years of Judah's existence. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done for because of the anger of the Lord, this happened in Jerusalem and Judah, and he finally cast them out of his presence. And then Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. And so he's reigning and uh, reigns for 11 years. But in the ninth year of his reign, he decides that he wants to break away in a rebellion against Babylon. The Egyptians at that point, uh, they uh, kind of talked to all of the nations that were around them, including Judah, asking if they, these Western nations would like to uh, rebel against the, the rule of Babylon. God was warning them through Jeremiah, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. It's not about Babylon. It's not about Nebuchadnezzar. It's about me. I'm the one who's chastening you. It's not geopolitical. It's not military. It's not money. It's sin. And you cannot change the sin problem, which is what's gotten you into this place geopolitically or through economics or any of these other things. The only thing that's going to save you is repentance. But they wouldn't accept that. And so he joins with this alliance of the Egyptians. That's why. Again, as we read the book of Jeremiah, God just keeps Jeremiah just keeps speaking over and over again. Don't put your trust in Egypt. Don't put your trust in Egypt. Don't put your trust in Egypt. This is not about Egypt, not about military, not about politics. This is about you and God. Do what is right with God and things will turn out okay. Isn't it funny how things get so complicated in our minds? We think, all right, I go right here and then a left here and I got and then I get my spiritual GPS out and I get this here and go over and all. And then, you know, then you open up the Bible and you see, oh, my, you know, the the way to pass go and collect my two hundred dollars and get right with God again is just to simply fall on my knees, repent of my sin and then watch him put Humpty Dumpty back together again, which he's willing to do in our lives. 
But we think it's this and this and this and this and all of these things. And without repentance, they kept God in a place where he was forced to continue uh, to uh, judge them. And so uh, so they joined that rebellion of the Egyptians. And, of course, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, you know, handily put that uh, rebellion down. And uh, now he is going to uh, be triply upset with Judah and he's going to besiege Jerusalem one more time. And this time he is super, super upset. He is the world. He is the leader of the world ruling empire at the time. And three times he has had to dispatch an army to deal with this little place called Jerusalem. So he's really, really upset at having to do this again. And you don't want to upset that guy. And, uh, and they've done it. And in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, he came to Jerusalem. And he burned, oh, let's see, no, I'm, oh, hold on a second here. Man, look at this. I'm not in that big of a hurry. Now, don't help me. It's already embarrassing enough. I'll call on your help in 45 seconds, though. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's right there. Verse 1, isn't it? How many of you knew that? Okay, all right. I love being humbled publicly. This is a great calling that God has on my life. I hope the redness of my face shows up on the camera that's showing this all around the world. This is fabulous. I think it's outstanding. Now, it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, ninth of his 11 years, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and encamped against it. And they built a siege wall against it all around. And so nobody gets in, nobody gets out. And so the city was besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. So for two years, no food. No food comes in, no food comes out, nothing. And so people begin uh, to starve as a result of this siege. Now, again, not a good uh, development for Judah. They've really upset the wrong guy and uh, most powerful man in the world, the head of the most powerful military in the world at the time. And again, Jeremiah is just talking to Zedekiah every chance he gets to submit, submit to the leadership of of um, uh, of Nebuchadnezzar. This is about God. God is going to remove you from the land. There's no changing that. He's going to cleanse this land of your sin. And he's going to because he's going to teach you a lesson the hard way. But there's no need for everybody to die in this city uh, instead of of repenting. And uh, all you need to do to get a sense for how terrible this siege was, it lasted 18 months and and, uh, how terrible it was when it went on. The aftermath of it is just to read the book of Lamentations. I'll just give you a little piece of it. Lamentations chapter four, verse 10, the hands of the compassionate women. These are the most tender hearted, the most tender hearted, softest, kindest, most considerate women. When this siege went on long enough, they cooked their own children and ate them. That's what they did. What's inside of us when it comes down 
Obviously, the children were probably dead and dying, and, and they became food for them in the destruction of the daughter of my people. God didn't want it. He kept sent Jeremiah, and they put him down in the dungeon. They want to hear his voice. You're going to get removed, but it doesn't have to be this way. But this, this Zedekiah, he wouldn't listen. And ultimately, a third of the population perished of hunger and, and disease. One third were killed by the sword, and a third of them ended up being taken into captivity uh, to Babylon. So this terrible, terrible uh, siege that, uh, that went, uh, went on. And so is this, all of this is happening here, and uh, uh, terrible uh, famine that we're told in the, in the, by the ninth day of the fourth month of famine had become so severe in the city, there was no food for the people of the land. And so what does the king do? Then the city wall was broken through. Uh, Babylon made its uh, entrance, got that breakthrough, breached the walls, and all the men of war then fled by night. The handwriting was on the wall here. They fled by uh, at night by the way of the gate between the two walls. Walls, this kind of secret place they knew, which was by the king's garden, even though the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, were still encamped all around against the city. The king went out by way of the plain, but the army of the Chaldeans, they knew, recognized what was happening pretty quickly, pursued the king. They overtook him in the plains of Jericho, not far from Jerusalem. And all of his army was scattered from him. And so they took the king that was responsible for this third conquest of the land and this terrible 18-month siege. Uh, they took the king, brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, where he had his uh, kind of uh, headquarters uh, for the siege. And they pronounced judgment on him. And then they killed his sons before his eyes, and then probably with, with hot uh, irons, uh, they then put his eyes out and they bound him with bronze fetters and they took him to Babylon. And so very, uh, the world plays hardball, fallen world. You put yourself in a place where you're either going to experience the mercy of God or you're going to try and expect mercy from the world. Better to go with the mercy of God. But it was too late to choose that for them now. So this guy's blind the rest of his life. And the last picture on his mind produced by his eyes with the death of his children right before his eyes. So it's very, very cruel. But that's just the way that the world was then and the way that the world is uh, even uh, today. Now, it's fascinating, uh, this blinding of Zedekiah on a prophetic level, because it fulfilled two very remarkable prophecies con given concerning Zedekiah, one by Jeremiah, one by Ezekiel. Prior to this, Jeremiah had prophesied that Zedekiah would see the king of Babylon face to face. That was fulfilled at Riblah. He saw Nebuchadnezzar face to face. Ezekiel then prophesied and, and declared that Zedekiah would be brought to Babylon, but he wouldn't see it, that he would die there. And the burning of his eyes out here, the removal of his sight, allowed two prophecies that seemed like, well, if you're going to see the face of Nebuchadnezzar, then surely you're going to see Babylon. How could you see his face and not see Babylon. Or if you were blinded prior, you would be blinded and not be able to see Nebuchadnezzar. And then you wouldn't see Babylon. But here's the two of them come together. The amazing intricacy of God's word. The, the testimony 
of fulfilled prophecy to the divine inspiration of the Word of God. It's very, very uh, powerful. And so he deals now with the king who forced this uh, great battle, and then now they just uh, begin to destroy Jerusalem fully. In the fifth month of the seventh day, short period of time after the conquest of the city, of the, on the seventh day of the month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of his personal guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, he came to Jerusalem with the orders to burn that city down to the ground. And so he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house. At this point in time, it's a very significant event in verse 9, the temple was destroyed. They burned it to the ground and completely destroyed it. Been in existence for four centuries. And what's fascinating, it's a great lesson from this too. It's fascinating that when God spoke to the children of Israel and he called on them to repent of their sin while they were being uh, attacked by the Babylonians, the children of Israel continued to be confident in the fact that they would not be defeated by pagans by virtue of the fact that they still had the temple and they were still going to the temple. So they said, there's no way we're going to be defeated as long as we have this temple and as long as we are going through some kind of motions in the worship of God at that temple. And the Lord steps in and he allows the temple to be completely destroyed. The religious activity that they were conducting in that temple meant nothing to God if it wasn't united with obedience to his word. God would rather see the pagans running through the temple and destroying the temple, the holy of holies, the most holy place. He would rather have that happen than to continue to endure the hypocrisy of his people continuing to live in sin and yet going to temple and pretending that they were all right with God. God said, I'd rather see the pagans destroy the place than to continue to endure the hypocrisy of my people. It's a very, very strong statement on, on that particular subject. And so it was destroyed. 400 years it's been there. Nothing can happen to this temple. It's going to be forever. Solomon's temple. I mean, what? And, and they destroy the whole thing along with the king's palace. All the houses of Jerusalem. That is, all the houses of the greats. He didn't want to be in the high income end of Jerusalem. Those were uh, destroyed. Where the powerful people were and were behind the rebellions, he burned that with fire. And all of the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard, they then broke down the walls of Jerusalem all around. And so they, uh, they, the, Jerusalem was surrounded by walls, insignificant walls. And they came in and they knocked down every bit of those walls around the city. And it took a lot of work to do that. But they were determined that they would never. Babylon was determined. We've conquered this city three times. We will not come back a fourth time. We will leave you defenseless. The reason it's significant for us is that those walls torn down link us to a story, biblical account, 150 years later. When a man by the name of Nehemiah comes back to rebuild those walls, these very walls that had been torn down 
in, in this event right here. And then Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, carried away captive the rest of the people who remained in the land and the defectors who had deserted to the king of Babylon with the rest of the multitude. But the captain of the guard left some of the poor in the land as vine dressers and farmers. So again, now he just strips everything out and he says, there isn't one person here that's capable of leading a rebellion against Babylon. And yet again, he didn't want the land to fall into, uh, you know, completely being unfruitful. So he left the farmers and the vine dressers there. The bronze pillars, uh, again, prior to the destruction of the temple, they stripped it of its wealth. The bronze pillars that were in the house of the Lord and the carts uh, and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord. All of these we remember from the law of Moses. Um, the Chaldeans, they broke them in pieces because they were so large for transport, broke them in pieces and they carried the bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots, the shovels, the trimmers, the spoons, all the bronze utensils with which the priests ministers ministered the fire pans and the basins, the things of solid gold and solid silver. The captain of the guard took away the two pillars, one sea and carts, which Solomon had made for the house of the Lord. The bronze of all of these articles was beyond measure. You couldn't even estimate it. It was so much. The height of one pillar was 18 cubits. And the capital of it uh, on it was bronze. The height of the capital was three cubits and the network and the pomegranates all around the capital were all bronze. The second pillar was the same with a network. And we remember from the law of Moses, the ornateness, the beauty uh, of of these uh, pillars now destroyed and taken to Babylon and the captain of the guard. Uh, took Sariah, the chief priest, Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three doorkeepers. He also took out of the city an officer who had charge of the men of war, five men of the king's close associates who were found in the city, the chief recruiting officer of the army. That is a recruiter for fighting Babylon, not a good position to have at this point, and 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the city. And so 72 in all, they, so Nebuchadnezzar, captain of the guard, took these, brought them to the king of Babylon at Ribla in his uh, remote headquarters. And then the king of Babylon struck them, put them to death at Ribla in the land of Hamath. And thus Judah was carried away captive from its own land. And it's very sobering right there at the end of verse 21. The great and wonderful and once godly Judah, David being the second king, bringing it to greatness, is no more. Just absolutely gone, deep, deep possessed of its people, and, uh, and, and the king destro- uh, kills these 72 because they were instrumental in the rebellion. Now, God's not through with the Jewish people. He just wanted to teach them a, a, a very important lesson, but it would be a hard lesson because of their determination to remain idolaters and to remain addicted to their wickedness. So in essence, what the Lord did with Judah was come to them and say, all right, you like idols? You enjoy being an idolater? I'm going to send you to that land of idols, which is what Babylon was. 
I'm going to put you in the middle of so many idols that you're going to have idols coming out of your nose. And you're going to come to hate idols. So that when I bring you back to the land, you will be forever cured of your idolatry. And you've got to give the Jews credit. When God brings them back under Ezra, back into the land, they would have many faults after that. But never again would they, to this day, be idolaters in the sense that they were here 2,500 years earlier. God used it to cure them of their idolatry. There's a better way, an easier way, to be cured of idolatry. It's just one word. Repentance. Having a change of mind about what I'm worshiping in life while I at the same time claiming to be a worshiper of God, repent of that idolatry and turn wholeheartedly to God. You see the same progression played out over and over again in individual human lives. Where here is somebody who claims to know Christ and they want the protection of God, they want the promises of God in the Bible, they just don't want to worship the God of the Bible supremely. So they begin to engage in the things that the rest of the world uh, worships. And it's idolatry. They give these things a greater place in their life than God. And God warns and he warns and he warns. And as I've said, he's so faithful to warn. And then one day a line gets crossed when his voice is just people refuse to listen to it. And he'll just say, all right, you like that sin? You like to dabble in that sin? Well, I got a cure for you. I'm going to release you into the full experience of that sin. And that person then begins to go full bore into that sin. They engage in it. And, and morning, noon, and night, they have their portion in it. And they explore it up one side, down the other. And then one day they wake up and they can't believe the human being that that sin has turned them into. They're disgusted with themselves. And then they turn to God. And they say, all right, I've learned my lesson. I realize that this sin is not even to be dabbled in. There's no future in it. I don't want it to dominate my life. I don't want it to have any part of my life. This terrible experience that I've been in, I've learned that experience. I want to walk full on for you. And you think about how many people have been in that place and have been forever cured of having any romantic vision, uh, ideas or visions about any particular sin once all of it, it, its uh, infamous glory comes forth practically in our lives. And they're cured of it and then spend the rest of their lives walking fully for God. It's a hard way to learn the lesson. But it is a way to learn the lesson as long as the lesson is learned. But if any of us are in this place tonight where God just knocking, don't do that, don't do that, you know better than that. You want to come to church, you want to hang around God's people, you want to be around, you want all of those blessings, but you want to do this thing over here. And I'm telling you, I'm not going to put up with it forever, not going to do it, not going to do it. I'm warning, I'm warning, I'm warning, I'm warning, I'm warning. And he never just talks for the sake of talking. I do that, but he never does that. And then one day, boom, it hits. And we're in bondage to this thing. 
And the weeks long or the months long or the years long nightmare comes. And there's no need for it to happen. God's speaking to us tonight. Turn from it. Turn from it. Don't learn it the hard way. That's always the worst way to learn the lesson. And then he made Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, governor over the people who remained in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left. And so now Judah is going to become a province of uh, uh, continue to be a province of uh, Babylon, he makes Gedaliah the governor of that promise. Gedaliah's father was a great friend of the prophet Jeremiah. And we know that uh, Gedaliah's father, that his father and his whole family were sympathetic and supporters of the prophet Jeremiah. So in putting Gedaliah in to uh, reign over this province of Judah now, Nebuchadnezzar knows that he is putting someone in place who is sympathetic to Babylon in the sense that he understands what Jeremiah has been saying. And that is this is God's judgment. Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon is God's instrument just Submit to these people and let God's chastening play out. And so this is why he is chosen. Now, when all of the kings of the uh, captains of the armies, they and their men heard that the king of Babylon had made Gedaliah governor, they came to Gedaliah at Mizpah, which is a city just a little bit outside of Jerusalem, which is where Gedaliah set up kind of his capital. Jerusalem is destroyed now. And then Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, uh, Johanan, the son of Kareth, uh, Saraiah, the son of uh, Tanhumath, the Nedophathite, and Zaaniah, the son of Maakathite, they and their men. That's a mouthful. But they came, and this guy, Ishmael, he's a no good. He is of royal blood. He finds out that Gedaliah has now been made the governor and he's sympathetic to Babylon. And maybe he thinks, wait a second, I want to rule over Judah and wants to lead the land in a fourth rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar. All of these guys that were officers or guerrilla warfare guys against uh, Babylon that had gone into these other countries. Now, when the military, Babylonian military leaves in large part and, and they were, they're left with Gedaliah, they come out of the woodwork and, and they come to Gedaliah. And Gedaliah took an oath before them and their men. And he said to them, don't be afraid of the servants of the Chaldeans. Dwell in the land, serve the king of Babylon, and it will be well with you. He communicates to them that we are going to submit to the authority of Babylon because we are submitting to the authority of God in doing so. But it happened in the seventh month that Ishmael, uh, just really a no good guy, he came with ten men. He assassinated Gedaliah, the Jews who were part of Gedaliah's leadership, as well as the Chaldean uh, kind of shadow or small military force that was with, there with him at Mizpah. So he comes in and kills all of them. And then all of the people, small and great, the captains of the armies, they arose and went to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. And so the people 
that were left in the land when Gedaliah was killed, they utterly rejected uh, Ishmael and wanted to uh, bring retribution against him for the terrible thing he had done to Gedaliah. Ishmael fled, but now the people realized, all right, word is going to go back to Babylon that we have killed the governor and the Babylonian military force that was here, and now they're going to come and squash us again. And so... Uh, you know, uh, believing that to be the case, they then fled to Egypt and uh, God spoke through Jeremiah that they weren't to do it, but they took Jeremiah by force into Egypt with them. We'll talk more about that when we get to the book of Jeremiah. Now, it came to pass to close the book in the 37th year of the captivity of Jehoiachin. So this guy's been in prison in Babylon for 37 years. That's a long time. In the twelfth month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, I mean, this is this is historical, isn't it? That evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, he released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. And so this guy's been in in a prison cell. He's been in prison garb, and now uh, he's released from that. Uh, the king of Babylon then spoke kindly to him gave him a more prominent seat than those uh, of the kings who were with him in Babylon. And then so Jehoiachin changed from his prison garments. He was able to wear uh, uh, nice apparel again. He ate bread regularly before the king all the days of his life. And so he began to have what was uh, being served to the king and by the king. So he was well fed the remainder of his life. And as for his provisions, there was a regular ration given him by the king, a portion for each day, all the days of his life. And so it looks like kind of a uh, abstract kind of way to end all of this, everything. And we're told about how a Jewish king is shown grace by uh, a, a, a pagan king here. And yet uh, what this passage does is it closes the book by infusing a ray of hope concerning the future of the Jewish people. And what would have happened is is the, the Jews that were now in captivity in Babylon, after 37 years, their king is taken out of the prison, he's given normal clothes, and he's fed every day. And as they see the grace that is shown, their king, who deserved no grace being given to them by this pagan king, it gave them the hope that God would do that for them as a nation, that they would be able to come out of the bondage of the prison cell of Babylon and one day be shown grace by the Gentile kings that were dominating the world at that time and be allowed to return to uh, the land and to Jerusalem. And so this is the way they would have interpreted this grace that was shown. And so it closes on that Hope. Any circumstance that God is involved in, there's hope in that circumstance. Now, let me close by recapping all of the lessons of Second Kings. I'm just kidding, kind of, to torture you. So it would take them 50 minutes. It wouldn't. The lesson is just one lesson. The importance of obedience. Obedience allows God to bless his people in the full measure that he wants to bless his people and he wants to bless us. 
Any of us who are dads, and if you're not a dad or a mom, you can put yourself in their place. We long to bless our kids. We long to bless our kids. It's heartbreaking when a child's disobedience robs us of the opportunity to bless our children the way we want to bless them. How much more the heart of God. Obedience allowed, allows God to bless us in the measure that he wants to. Disobedience forces him to withhold those blessings and instead to chasten and to discipline us. I look at this and I, and I look at the amount of space given in the Old Testament to the point of obedience. And it's, a, it's an astonishing amount of pages given over to just drive home that point. And you know what it tells me? It tells me something about me, and I assume it tell, it, it, it's true of you also. That even though this can seem like repetitious, it's like, is he going to talk about obedience again tonight? And we bring it up over and over and over and again through this section of the book. And it tells me that apparently we can't hear it often enough. That apparently this world that we live in is so deceitful and so seductive and the sin so attractive and the temptations of the devil so subtle that we need to hear repeatedly the importance of just simple obedience to God's word. I would defy anyone in this room. Catch me afterwards. Don't shout out. I'm out of time. But I would defy anyone to name one single nation in human history or one single individual person who has violated this lesson of obedience and had it turn into any other end than the one that we see with first the northern kingdom of Israel and then the southern kingdom of Judah. The stakes are so high and God loves us so much. And so he invests the time and the effort to drive home the point. May no willful disobedience survive the searching of God's word tonight in any of our hearts, in any of our lives. And if you have to sit in this room, any of us this evening that might be in a place where you have to sit in this room until 11 o'clock at night to get things right with God tonight, then you do that. Or to sit in your car to do whatever needs to be done. The stakes are so high, so important to the heart of God. Let's stand together and we'll pray together. The worship team will close us in a worship song. If you don't know Christ tonight, you've never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. There are going to be men and women up in front after our service, and they're going to have a badge on this as prayer so you can identify them easily. And they'd love to pray with you to begin a relationship with God tonight. Or if you need prayer concerning anything that we've looked at this evening or anything else that may be happening privately in your life. Need maybe to be anointed with oil for healing in your body or whatever it might be. Or you just want to talk to somebody about a problem that you have and have them pray for you. They'll be glad to do that. That's what the body of Christ is all about. Thank you, Father, for your word. And we know you're not wordy. We know you don't waste words. We know everything that you have to say is 
Just a single word is going to outlive the heavens and the earth. And so, Lord, we move from this book now. And by your Holy Spirit, we want to fully absorb the importance of the lesson, the big lesson behind all of this history. So that, Lord, the history that we would repeat in our lives individually would be like the reign of David and Josiah and the great kings of Judah. And not, Lord, to live this other life that turns you from being the great blesser that you want to be into the great chastener that you will be forced to be and willing to be put in that place if necessary, but not your first choice. And so search us, try us, Lord. See if there's any wicked way within us. Do not release us until we've repented of any of it and all of it, Lord. We thank you tonight as we close for the privilege of obedience. We give you praise from the bottom of our hearts tonight, Lord, for the privilege of being able to know your word, to obey it, and to enjoy the unbelievable quality of life that comes out of that. And so, Lord, we give you praise from this room and from this pulpit tonight as well. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.